today. Get your Bibles, please, and go to Revelation chapter 2. I hope that's your prayer in your heart, that it's well with your soul. And yes, Lord, haste the day. Amen? I said, Lord, haste the day. Amen? And we're excited about His return, and we want to be faithful until He returns. Revelation chapter 2, it's the last book in your Bible. And I'm going to make a couple of comments this morning just before I preach. Just the Lord put on my heart for the early service. And uh, I'm not a very political pastor. I don't usually say a whole lot about those things. I, I believe that the pulpit is for, the, for God's Word. Now, some of you, I lost you there, but the pulpit is for God's Word. Amen. Amen. But I just want to encourage you Christians today that today is a day where Christians ought to vote. That was a good place to say amen. I say Christians ought to vote. Amen. amen. We ought to vote. And if we're seeing anything, we're seeing right now that God uh, blesses those that vote for conservative values. And you say, what are conservative values? I don't know, but let's just pick one. How about abortion? I, I, would, I would never sign my name next to somebody who stands for murdering unborn children. Teenagers, look up here. All Christians ought to vote. And all God's people said... Amen. If there's something that we're seeing right now, it's a possibility. And I pray that someday in America, they would, re, they would overturn Roe versus Wade. Let me tell you something. That's something we ought to be praying for. You want to see God bless our nation? Get rid of abortion in our nation. And all God's people said, amen. So I just want to encourage you about that as your pastor. You ought to vote for those things. You say, I'm not sure who's for what. You ought to know that. That's your responsibility. And look it up and, and figure all that stuff out. But I think it's pretty clear. And so let's vote and, and be a, do our part and do that. And so I'm excited about those things. I'm praying that God would bless our country. You know why? I, I, as a pastor, I want to take the gospel to this country. And there's going to come a day where our freedoms will be taken away if we don't vote. And all God's people said, amen. I hope, parents, you understand what I'm saying and teach it to your kids. Revelation chapter number two, that's not the message today. The message is getting back to the basics, and I hope it's an encouragement to you. Look at Revelation two, look at verse one. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. If you don't know what that means, we're going to explain it here in just a moment. Verse 2, I know thy works, God is saying to this church. He says, in the labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them, oh, which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake, hast what church? Labored and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast what? Left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, thou hast hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We know here in this passage of Scripture that John the Revelator is writing letters to seven churches. These were seven literal churches back in this day this day and time. And John was writing to them. One of those churches was called Ephesus. You see that in chapter number one. And so this letter written from John, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, is from God to this church at Ephesus. And the things that are said here are from the Lord to this church. I often wonder, and I wonder as I read this passage, that if God were to write a letter of an evaluation of Central Valley Baptist Church, what would he say about us? 
If God were to assess my heart, my motivations, my work, if he were to assess all of us as a church, because a church is not a building, it's a group of people. If he were to assess all of us, how would he describe Central Valley Baptist Church? This prospect immediately causes me to stop and to examine my heart, to examine our church, to examine what is done for Christ through our church. And before we answer too quickly, whether we think that we're doing well or not, may we realize today that Christians in Ephesus, if they could lose their first love and be rebuked by a holy God, we are also susceptible to the same folly. How many understand what I'm talking about? So let's take a minute today and let's examine our own hearts. Let's ask ourselves as we uh, hear the message and God's word preached, are we still passionate? Are we fervently, are we zealously, not just going to church, not just attending, not just serving, but are we fervently, passionately, zealously loving God? Perhaps today in one way or another, you have lost that passion that zeal, perhaps you have left your first love. So that's what this series is all about, getting back to the basics. Wonderfully, God, whenever he gives a diagnosis, he always gives the remedy. And so today, that's what this message is all about. What do we do to get back to our first love? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd help us today. Speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We see here in Revelation chapter number two, a group of people at the church of Ephesus. Now, just real quick, this is a regular church, just like ours. And it's a church of older folks, a church of younger folks, teenagers, young people, married people. This is a church just like us. These were not super Christians. Uh, These were just people like you and I. And this people here at one time or another had a zealous love for Christ, but they had lost that first love. These were followers of Christ, just like you and me. But there came a time where they started or they fell from that love that they had. For us to understand what kind of a love that they had, let's go in our Bibles to Acts chapter number 19. Would you go there? Acts chapter number 19. You might want to hold your place there in Revelation. Let's do a little Bible study here for just a second. Acts chapter number 19. Uh, If you're a guest today, by the way, thank you for being here. We're glad you're here. We have uh, a gift for you after church. We'd love to meet you. If you're a guest online, thank you for joining us. Let us know. We'd love to know where you're from. Acts chapter number 19, if you look at verse number 18 with me, it says this. In Acts chapter number 19, verse 18, the Bible says this, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. If you read the context, this is the, the people in Ephesus. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and what? They burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. We see here in this passage that many of those that were in Ephesus converted from their paganism to Christianity. And the sign of their conversion was them burning the works, the curious works that they had, uh, they had studied and they had uh, believed. And if you've studied anything about Ephesus and the pagan temples there, it was a disgusting form of worship. And this was a very pagan style of worship. Now, these people brought these books. They didn't just give them to someone else. They didn't pass them to someone else. They brought them and they destroyed them. Keep in mind that at this particular time, uh, books were not, there was no printing press. 
There was no automatic copy machines. There was no Xerox back then. And so every book that was printed was printed by hand. If you study it out, you can find that uh, scholars, of course, don't know exactly how much this is worth. The Word of God says pieces of silver. It doesn't denote which type of silver, but most scholars believe that this amount of books was worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $1.5 and $5 million. This was a lot of money's worth of books. How many of you, when you were a kid growing up, maybe you grew up in church and you went to a camp and they had some kind of a burning? Did anybody ever do that growing up as kids? And they, they you know, you back then, uh, Brother Dan, you probably had A-track tapes back then. <laughs> You know, you brought your A-track tapes, maybe way back, maybe your records, I don't know. But way back in the day, but we brought tapes or CDs, and, and some people, they burned these things, and, and that was something they used to do in camps and stuff. But what this was, though, with the, the church at Ephesus, it was a sign of their, them falling in love with the Lord. They, there was, in other words, there was nothing in their life they were not willing to give up for the Lord. They began to come to Christ and they recognized how far Christ was willing to reach down and to save them. And so they brought the most uh, treasured things that they had. These books, they were worth uh, monetarily and spiritually. They were worth something to them. And they brought them to the foot of the cross and they burned them. Why? Because they had a love for God. So what happened between this bonfire and the scathing review of God in Revelation chapter 2? How many of you, maybe, uh, hopefully you remember this if you're married, but how many of you remember the days you were falling in love? Anybody remember those days, falling in love? Raise your hand. Some of you, your wife's looking at you, so you better raise your hand, amen? And maybe you're engaged, or maybe you're dating, and maybe you're married, and you're fa- I remember those days, falling in love. I fell hard, and I fell fast. Let me tell you something. And uh, for those of you that have seen my wife, and you've seen me, you're like, yes, Brother Delzo, we understand what you're saying. And uh, now, let me just tell you what happened to me. So I was a senior in high school. And I was at Lancaster Baptist Church. It was a big church, probably 2,000, I don't know, some, some people in the, in the pews there. And let me just give you a little glimpse into the mind of a teenage boy. Okay, you ready? When a teenage boy is sitting in a group, all he's doing is looking for the prettiest girl in the room. If he doesn't already have a girlfriend, all right? Don't look at me like that, like you're so shocked I said that. You, you did the same thing. Anyway, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking for the prettiest girl. I'm, I'm getting ready to start dating, and I'm like, and I'm scanning this, 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 uh, this choir, there's probably 300 people in the choir. And I'm looking at all these people. There's instrument players and all this stuff. And my, my eyes set upon the gaze of an angel, the beautiful, most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It was my wife. There she was. Not yet, but I'm like, I'm going to marry that girl right there. After that day, I, I'm like, I'm going to talk to her. And uh, I, you know, I had probably had too much confidence back then. Anyway, and so after church, you know, the church was dismissed. People were walking around. I ran as fast as I could. I knew she was going to put. My wife had a 1969 or 67 VW Bug with SpongeBob seat covers. <laughs> it was teal green. I knew exactly what car was hers. And uh, she was walking, and I ran all the way around. You know, this is a big building. I ran all the way around. I got within eye shot. She couldn't see me, and I stopped and I played it all cool. You know, hey girl. And I went up to her and I talked to her. I said, hey, uh, can I help you with that? I was talking about her violin. She goes, no. And she just kept walking. I was smitten. I was in love. Amen. But I remember those days and I remember dating. And, and uh, this was back before, you know, not before cell phones necessarily, before texting, you know, was popular. And so you actually passed these, these little pieces of paper and you wrote on them and you gave them to somebody else. And I remember she gave me notes and I would go in my room. And remember, you'd read those notes over and over again. Anybody remember those days? Am I the only one that fell in love in here? <laughs> I remember reading those notes and I'd give her gifts. And, and, uh, and after two months, we dated. I don't recommend this for everybody, but after two months, I told her I loved her. 
I knew I loved her. I wanted to marry her. I was falling in love. You remember those days when you first met somebody, when you first got engaged, or you first you were falling head over, head over heels in love? Like a young couple that falls in love, this church in Ephesus, they fell hard for the Lord Jesus Christ. They fell hard for them when they recognized how much Jesus loved them and how what he did for them on the cross and that he reached way down for them. Boy, they fell hard in love with the Lord. They loved him so much. They brought those books and they burned those things. But at some point, something happened. God said that they left that first love. Now, the word left in English can be used in many ways. It can be used in a a light way. It can be used in a very... Uh, serious manner. In other words, you might say something like, oh, I accidentally left my cell phone in the car or I left my sunglasses at the restaurant. That's not really a strong use of the word, but in English, we can use that word very strong. And let me illustrate it for you. I don't mean to hurt anybody, but this is a very strong way. You might say something like, my wife left me or my dad left when I was 10. That word left has a much different connotation, doesn't it? This word right here that God is using when they left their first love. Look up here. When they left their, this is what he's saying. He's saying they left it. This word left means a voluntary leaving of something behind. It's a harsh word, a cruel word. In other words, to leave something, to ignore something, to neglect. And this church at Ephesus, they lost that love. They left it. They left it behind. Ephesus left that love and God said that that, was such a spiritual crime that he would remove their candlestick. In other words, he would blot out the light of this church if they did not repent and return. What was the church at Ephesus doing that merited such a criticism? As best I can study from the text, I want to give you just a couple things. Number one this morning, if you're taking notes today, number one is this. Ephesus developed a loveless labor. Over time... They developed a loveless labor. Look at verse number two. Notice what God says here. He says, I know thy what, church? Now, come on. Are you with me today? I know you want to go eat, so you might want to talk back. All right, here we go. I know thy what? Works. Works. And look at verse number two. Look, he says, and and I know thy what? Labor. Labor and thy patience and how thou canst bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they're apostles and are not and found them liars. Then in verse three, he says, and hast borne. That word borne means to lift something heavy, put it on your back and carry it. He says, I know that you've borne and you've had patience. And for my name's sake, thou hast what? Notice that word labored again and hast not fainted. They were faithful. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against that you have left your first love. Ephesus wasn't a bad church necessarily. They actually had some good things going on here. If you look closely, you'll see a truth that is very, a very large and hard pill to swallow. And here's the truth. Labor doesn't necessarily equal love. It's apparent that this was a working church. They were working. They were faithful. They were patient. They were doing these things, but listen, this morning, in this labor and in this holiness and in this discernment and in this faithfulness, none of those things have anything to do with love. I grew up in church, and if you're here this morning and you grew up in church, you know what I'm about to say. It's very easy, if you've been in church a long time, to put on the Christian mask. Very easy. It's easy to develop a labor, a, a loveless labor. It's very easy. 
out of the youth group that I grew up in and the college students that I went to Bible college with, out of my friends and the same teenagers that went soul winning, the same Bible college students that went soul winning, the same teenagers that went to youth conference, the same teenagers that went to camp, the same teenagers that worked on the bus route, the same youth group that sang in the youth choir. All of them, not all of them, but many of them, as soon as they leave college, as soon as they leave church, they turn their back on church completely. How does that happen? It's a laborless, it's a loveless labor. Sure, they're going soul winning and sure they're working on the routes. And yes, they have this this mask on and this thing, but there's no love for God in their hearts. Not everybody's that way. Don't get me wrong. And sometimes I was that way. And I had to grow into that. And I understand all of those things. But may I just say that it's very easy to develop that. We need to be careful of that. Sometimes we stand in this auditorium. and We sing songs like we sang this morning. And we don't focus on the one that we're singing to. So often we don't sing out of love. And we're too worried how we sound. And we're too worried. We don't know. We don't like this particular song. Or we don't like the way the song leader led that song. Or, or maybe uh, we don't know it, so we're not going to sing it. And, and instead of filling our lungs with joy and with love for Christ and singing out to our Heavenly Father, we're looking around the room to see who else is singing. And may I just say this morning that may we not develop a loveless labor. So often we read our Bibles in the morning and it's simply to check off a box or to fill a time card or whatever it is. But instead of feeling that revival in our hearts from this eternal word that used to work a labor of love inside of us and would soak deep into our hearts and revive our spirits, we read it like, like the newspaper. So often we pray and it's, dear Lord, thank you for this food. Amen. It's out of duty, it's out of habit, it's out of panic, it's out of desperation, it's out of want, it's out of things that it's not necessarily an experience of refreshing, deep love for Christ, but just words. And and listen, I've, I've been there. Labor does not equal love. You can labor without love, but you cannot love without labor. You see, we don't labor for Christ. We don't labor for him because we because we're worried about being zapped or whatever. We labor for Christ out of love. And we should labor for Christ. It ought to be our motivation for our labor. And so Ephesus had developed this loveless labor. And I look at my life and I think, am I just laboring to check a box or because of a habit or to impress somebody or whatever the case might be? Or am I laboring out of a love for my Lord? What happens next here? We see they develop this loveless labor. And then number two, Ephesus develops a stagnant separation. A stagnant separation. Look at verse two again. He says, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience. Then he makes an interesting statement. He says, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. This church did not let evil into their church. And by the way, may I say that's a good thing. He says, thou hast tried them that say they're apostles, and they are not, and found them liars. That also is a good thing. And all God's people said, amen, Amen. doctrinal purity and not letting wolves in. And then he says this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. He says, and this thou hast, you've hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, God hates sin. Are you with me this morning? God hates it. My family and I were on vacation recently, and I have four boys, and, uh, you know, we're in the hotel room there. We're going to go to the beach or whatever we're going to do that day. We're getting kind of getting ready and whatever. And, you know, when you have four boys in a hotel room, it's like ping pong balls in a bathtub. So I'm trying to keep them still. I'm like, just sit in the bed and watch something, you know, watch something on TV. 
And so they turn on the, the, the cartoons and they're watching cartoons and I'm going back and forth, brushing my teeth and doing all that stuff. And then I heard something weird out of, my, out of the corner of my ear. <laughs> and I look over and they're watching TV. This was Nickelodeon. I didn't know that. But they're watching TV and on Nickelodeon, there's a man and a man with their arms around each other holding a, a rainbow flag on Nickelodeon, on Nickelodeon. You understand that Nickelodeon's for kids. Now, we don't have regular TV at our house. We have other things that we do for entertainment there. But So I hadn't watched commercials in a long time. I have not seen a commercial. They're brainwashing our kids to abomination. Now, lest you're confused about that, read Romans chapter 1. It's an abomination. That's a good place to say amen. 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 And they're, they're brainwashing our kids. to and, and I was absolutely livid that they would play that to my five-year-old who's watching a little cartoon. That word Nicolation there just reminded me of Nickelodeon. They're not connected, but it just reminded me. But God hates that stuff. So just to be clear this morning, don't get me wrong. It's important that the church, the Christian, is separated from the world. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You say, where does it say that in Scripture? Well, let's look at it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there. We know the Ephesians and the Corinthians both were predominantly Gentile churches saved from paganism. So here's first-generation churches that, that, that they were saved and they had this love for Christ. They have, to, they have to say no to the world, no to paganism. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Skip down to verse 14. Notice what Paul says. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what conquer, that means agreement, hath Christ with Belial? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple? of God with idols, for ye are the temple of the living God. Listen, if you're saved this morning, the temple of the living God is in you. God is in you. That's what Paul is saying here. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Corinthians were going back into their paganism, going back and trying to connect the world with their new, uh, their new creature, and they're trying to connect the two. And God's saying, no, you cannot connect those two things. You have to be separate. Look at verse 17. Wherefore, he says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be the fa- a father unto you, and you will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. These Ephesians, these Corinthians, they had come out of that paganism, and Paul was trying to remind them where they came from. Come out from them. Some of you in the room this morning, you're first generation Christians. You know what it's like to be over there in the world. You know what it's like to be saved from that. Talk to my dad sometime. Ask about his testimony, what God saved him out of. You could never convince him to go back to where he came out of, but I'm not that way. I grew up in a Christian home. I sat in church week after week in youth group, week after week, and I don't really know what it's like to be in the world. And some of our second and third generation Christians are looking over at the world and saying, what's the big deal? Why are you getting so worked up about this? They were not saved over there out of that. That doesn't mean you have to live your life that way. You can recognize, as my dad said, he told me when I was growing up, you don't have to be hit by a Mack truck to know that it hurts. Amen. So your parents and your grandparents that were saved out of that, the mess of the world, recognized this morning that we are new creatures in Christ, created in Him. All things have become new. So this relationship that we have with God in our hearts, this light, it does not have anything to do with the world. Yes, separation is important. 
But separation does not mean love. It doesn't mean love. And too often, if we're not careful, we mistake the two. It seems like these Christians in Ephesus, after fighting spiritual battles year after year, testing false prophets, training leaders, losing them, trying the spirits, watching the door, dealing with the spiritual wolves who would constantly try to come in and ravage the congregation. These Ephesians seem to become so focused on protecting their little flock that they were no longer able to enjoy the relationship that they had with Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, we can become so separated and so we have all of our T's crossed and our I's dotted. We're so right down the line. If we're not careful, we will, we will lose sight of our Savior. Separation is necessary, but stagnation is not. You don't have, it's not, they're not mutually exclusive. You can be separated and not stagnant. And all God's people said, Amen. You say, Pastor, what helping me with what that looks like? What that looks like is, yes, we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. By the way, you're a sinner. What that means is we don't partake in the sin. We don't bring sin in our church to reach sinners, but we pursue the sinner. What that means is, yes, we do our best to live holy, but we never look at somebody like we're holier than them. What that means is we get closer to God in our convictions, but we don't crush our brother. What that means is we do our best for God, but we don't look down on others. What that means is we watch for the wolves, yes, but we welcome the wanderer. What that means is we might have to cast out the scorner, but we invite the seeker. Listen, we don't have to stagnate as a church, and may we never stagnate as a church. And yes, we say, yes, the world, we don't want to be like the world, but we are in the world. We have to reach the world. This building on 10948 South Airport Road is not a club for those who have somehow arrived and those who don't measure up to whatever standards we think they should have are turned away. No, my friends, this church is a gathering place for the broken. Are you with me this morning? I said, this is a gathering place for the broken. Say amen. amen. It's a gathering place for the broken. It's a gathering place for the weary. It's a gathering place for the lost, the messed up, the down and out, the hurting, the sinner, the poor. In other words, this is a place for us. Because I just described myself. May we not forget that our hearts, as Jeremiah described, are desperately wicked. Yes, separation is important. And we ought to come out from among those things and, and try to keep our kids from that stuff. And, and yes, we do that, but may we not stagnate. We see Ephesus was a church with a loveless labor. It was a church that was separated but stagnant, but God didn't leave it there. Oh, my friends, thank God in His mercy and in His grace and in His love, God leaves us room to repent. I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you've developed a loveless labor or not, but I've been there. And I'm so thankful that God, by His grace, He gives me room to get my act together. And all God's people said, Amen. He gives me room. And so what does God say? What does He want us to do? Look at number three here. Ephesus was instructed to remember and return. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, do the first works. Or else I will come unto thee and remove thy candle quickly, and remove thy candlestick out of its place except thou repent. Just quickly, as a matter of doctrine, I want to make sure everybody in the room understands that what, Paul is, or what John is saying here in this chapter, he's not talking about losing your salvation. 
He's not saying that if you don't, if you lose your love, he's going to remove your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. You say, well, how do you know that? Take your Bibles and go to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's just real quick, let's cover this doctrinal this doctrinal, uh, 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 this doctrine of eternal security here. Go to Ephesians chapter number one. I want to show you something. And, and I know there are some, some, even Baptist churches that teach you can lose your salvation. And may I just say this morning that you cannot lose your salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter number one. Look at verse 12. That we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. Now, Rome, uh, Revelation chapter two is written to what church? Ephesians. And what is Ephesians written to? Ephesians, it's not a trick question. So this is the same church now. Look at what it says in verse 12. That we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted. Notice this. After that, ye heard the word of truth. That, that, that's a big, uh, a big hole in what we would call Calvinism. Predestination. We understand that God knows what's going to happen, but you believed after you heard the word of truth. We could talk about that a long time, but it says, In whom also you trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after ye believed, were, you, do not, you were not sealed with the Holy Spirit until after you, were, after you believed, were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he paid our sin debt. When we accept Christ as our Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit, and we are what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. How many of you ladies have ever canned anything? Yeah, my wife can stuff. And have you ever opened up one and it didn't seal properly? Ugh, ugh. But when it's sealed, that means it's sealed shut. And listen, I just want to say something this morning, that if God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit, far be it from me to think that I can unseal it. You say, well, I'm not so sure. Okay, let's go one more chapter here. Let's go one, one chapter over, over to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Again, talking to the Ephesian church. Look at verse 4. It says here, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together. That means to make us alive again, hath quickened us together with Christ. And then notice these brackets, by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places with Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through what? Faith and not of yourselves. It is a what? Gift of God. Salvation is a gift. Salvation is not something that you earn. It's a gift. If somebody ever gives you a gift and you have to pay for it, that wasn't very nice. Not of works, verse 9, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. He wants us to, to serve him out of love, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So I ask you this morning, maybe this morning you feel like, well, if, if I do this, if I do that, I, I don't know that I'm saved. I don't know if I'm saved anymore. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I walked away from the Lord or I backslid and I'm not saved anymore. I want to ask you a very simple question. This is a logical question. If you did not work to earn your salvation, how can you work to keep your salvation? Let me ask it another way. If there was no work that I could do to obtain salvation, then what work is neglected? That will lose salvation. There is nothing I could do to earn it. So what law or what thing or what do I say? Well, what if I walk away from the Lord and kick dust at him? Tough luck, Chuck. You're still saved. If you were truly saved. And all God's people said, 
Study the book of Hebrews. I believe it's chapter 6 where the Bible says if you've tasted the divinely gift, it is impossible to lose that. And so praise God this morning. If you're saved, you're saved. Yes, we sin and we sin every day, and but we stand forgiven. And so what is Paul talking about if he's not talking about salvation? Uh, John, excuse me. What is he talking about if he's not talking about salvation? Look at verse 5 of Revelation chapter 2. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee and remove thy candlestick out of his place. Remember, God is not addressing the individual here. He's addressing this as a church. And it's very simply what he's talking about. Go to Revelation chapter number 1, one chapter over. Go there real quick. I'm almost done. And then in and out we go. I actually am going in and out today, and I'm very excited about it. Double-double animal style with some fries and a strawberry shake, amen? Look at Revelation chapter number 1, look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in thy right hand, in my right hand. The seven what? Golden what? Candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels. That word angel means messenger. These are the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven what? Candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. So when God says in verse 5 that he will remove thy what? Candlestick out of his place. He's not talking about salvation. He's simply saying, you as a church, you better repent and go back to the first works, your first love, or I'm going to remove your candlestick. I'm going to remove this church. I'm going to remove this light. I'm going to write Ichabod across the door. God can extinguish the light that was burning in Ephesus. I don't mean to be critical today. I, please don't. This breaks my heart. There are many churches across this great country of ours that are sitting empty this morning. All across the United States, there's, there's plywood on the doors, and there's, the pulpits have been they're dusty, and, and, they're, and they're rotting, and they're decaying. Why are these buildings sitting that way? Because at some point, that church lost its love. It lost its love. Say, well, what do we do if I look at my life and I recognize, Pastor, that I've lost my love for Christ and maybe you're there? What do I do? What does God say to do? First, letter A, he says to remember where we fell. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Can I ask you today, maybe you're far away from the Lord. When did you lose your love? And I just want to be very honest with you today. You don't lose your first love because of something that happened at church. You don't lose your first love because of your family. You don't lose your first love because of your job. You don't lose your first love because of Nancy Pelosi. That's not why we lose our love. At some point in time, we fell from that love. I was the other night in my house. uh, I don't know what happens to you, but I go to bed hot and I wake up freezing cold. Does that happen to anybody else? And I open the windows. We don't run the air conditioner. I open the windows at night. And I go to bed. I'm hot. And we have the fan running ahead. We have the fan around the corner. And I go to sleep. And I wake up. And I am just freezing cold. Does that happen to anybody else? And I get up in the middle of the night a lot of times. And I'll shut off the fan because I'm freezing. And in my room, I have this ottoman thing. that It's like a green thing. We bought at Ikea. And I put my feet up on it. And in the middle of the night, I get up. And I go to turn that fan off. I'm freezing. And I'm shivering. And I get up. And I'm walking kind of briskly through the broom. And I I, I just, I fell right over that thing like head for boom, in the middle of the night. And I'm laying on the ground and my wife gets up swinging. She goes, what, what, what? And she's ready to fight somebody. And that's how she wakes up. You gotta watch out. But anyway, and so, uh, and I'm like, no, it's, it's fine, honey, it's fine. And I just said, I said, I just, I fell. I fell over this, this dumb thing here. I don't know why I leave it there because I trip over it almost every night. But anyway, I fell. I fell. It was me. Nobody pushed me. 
Yes, it was dark, but it wasn't anybody's fault. I fell. I tripped. And in your life today, you say, man, I'm my love, but this guy did this to me, or this person said that, or my, I just, I have so much, I'm so busy. Listen, you can blame everything in the world you want, but remember where you fell. Do you remember what it was like when you were first saved? There was nothing you wouldn't do for the Lord. Do you remember those days when you first came to Christ? You couldn't wait to go to church. You couldn't wait. Let me do something, pastor. I want to do something. Give me a job, anything. And then when we came to Christ, we were falling in love with Christ. And we just, we couldn't get enough Bible. We we couldn't get enough. And we, we listened to messages. And we read as much as we could read. And we prayed as much as we could pray because we were in love with the Lord. But somewhere along the line, we fall, don't we? It happens to everybody. I said it happens to all of us. Week in and week out, life happens and and we fall from that. And what does God say? Remember that. Remember when you first came to me. Remember what you did when we first, uh, when I first came into your heart. Remember those things. And then lastly, letter B, return to the first works. So once I remember that, I need to return back to the first works. Back to the basics. I'm not going to overwhelm anybody today with a list of things to do. I'm not going to send you away with, you know, here's five points to getting back to the first. That's not what I'm going to do. I just want to instruct you today to simply look inside of your own heart. Am I in love with God like I used to be? I can say this with all honesty. I love my wife more today than I did when we first met. I grow in love with her more every day. I love my wife more today than I did last year. Every day. And that's ought to be my relationship with God. I ought to love God more today than I did 10 years ago. I ought to love God more today than when I first got saved because I'm learning about Him and I'm learning how good He is really to me. And, and, I, and I search the unsearchable riches of His grace and I recognize what He's done for me. And yes, uh, we try our best to live holy, but I recognize that I'm a sinner. I ought to fall in love with God more every day. So let's get back to the basics. Next week, I'm going to preach and I'm going to start preaching for maybe five weeks on the basics. The basics like finding joy in your salvation, growing in our Christian walk, developing a prayer life, getting back to witnessing, serving. These are all the basics. But today, maybe in your heart, you've gotten away from that first love. Let's remember and let's return. I don't want to get stuck in a cycle of a loveless labor. I don't want to be separated and stagnant. I want to remember and return back to the first works. Let's pray together today. Every head bowed.